ensure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Take all the time you want. Time's not real anyway. We just wanted to let you... You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe it's rock and roll, Good morning, mutineers. This is the B, and yes, you are tuned to Mutiny Radio. It is 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and this is the Labor and Love Show. This is the show where we tell you how it is. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve You may be blind or lame Maybe living in another country Under another name But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you are You're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Working on a home Might be living in a mansion You might live in a dome You may own guns And you may even own tanks You may be somebody's landlord You may even own banks But you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair. 
Maybe somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. I like to wear silk, my like to drink whiskey, my like to drink milk, my like to eat caviar, and my like to eat bread. Maybe sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king size bed, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And this is Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Okay, we kicked off there with Bob Dylan reminding you that you are responsible for everything you do. It either makes life better or life worse. Life better for someone or life worse. I thought I heard say, pay me my money down. Tomorrow is our sailing day.
what low-wage workers now are saying to their corporate billionaire bosses. Pay me my money back. All right. That's what love is for. Don't you let nobody drag your spirit down. Shout your spirit let down. Nobody drag your spirit down. Down. Come on up to heaven. Don't let nobody tear your spirit down.
to turn you around. That was uh, Linda Tillery. Linda Tillery and the uh, Heritage Orchestra. And before that, we had the boss, Bruce Springsteen, with uh, his rather raucous version of Pay Me My Money Down. Welcome to the Labor and Love Show. Let's see what we got on for today. We've got the Cater disaster, the worst factory disaster since the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York City. We've got labor notes relating to the strike against Verizon and the Twin Cities janitor, that's Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, the $15 an hour campaign, which is gaining a lot of momentum now. We've got John Trudell. You know, Earth Day's coming up, and John Trudell is going to talk to us about what we've done to our mother. A strike against the Stalinist regime in the 1930s in Russia, spearheaded by women. Yes, sir, it happened. A woman who called out Rick Scott. Don Blankenship, the king of coal. Thrown in jail for a year. How did that happen? <laughs> okay, this is Labor and Love. Let's listen to some of our labor news now. Um... Is my when we can review workers independent news we can review i'm doug cunningham verizon is just endemic of what's going on in the nation it's a corporate race to the bottom it's a total disregard for the working man and woman total disregard for the middle class and the working class and it's our turn it's our turn to fight back it's our time and we're going to win this fight striking cwa new york city worker victor fuentes 39,000 verizon workers went on strike at 6 a.m wednesday after trying to bargain a fair labor contract for 10 months verizon is making about 1.8 billion dollars a month profit and is still pushing for concessions and to ship more good jobs overseas. The IBEW's Miles Calvi is chairman of the union's T6 council at Verizon. We want strikes simply to maintain what we have. We're not asking for outrageous demands. We agreed to pay more for our health care. We're not going after outrageous salary demands. We're not going after anything that we don't already have in the contract. The Fight for 15 movement took it to the streets in 300 cities Thursday in the largest ever day of strike and protests demanding a higher wage and a union. Fast food worker Angel Mitchell says realities faced by workers are fueling this movement. We're still making poverty wages. We go to work every single day and we deserve to be able to pay our lights, our gas. Our children deserve to have food on the table. So we're in 300 U.S. cities, 40 different countries on six different continents around the world. All of us are striking because it's important. Solo Little John says the union is just as vital as the $15 an hour. Doing a lot of these rallies and learning what a union is and finding out the 
importance of having a union is my reason for being here today, not just for higher minimum wage. The most disgusting, egregious crime against the elderly people of this country I've ever seen done in my life. Retired Milwaukee Teamster Bob Amsden talking about the huge 30 to 70 percent pension cuts that are coming for retirees depending on the central state's pension fund. A final decision on the cuts is coming May 7th. An act of Congress called the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014 made the big pension cuts that are now looming legal. What it should have been called is cut the throats of the people of the United States because you got 1,500 multi-employer pension plans out there that's going to affect 10 million people if this goes through. Wisconsin AFL-CIO Secretary-Treasurer Stephanie Bloomingdale says the Dane County Circuit Court ruling on the anti-union right-to-work law means that full collective bargaining rights have been restored to private sector workers in the state. We're very pleased that full bargaining rights have been restored to working people in Wisconsin. This is a victory for working people, so that means right-to-work is struck down in Wisconsin right now. We know that Scott Walker and his allies will do every maneuver in the book to try to challenge this in the court. We need to do everything we can to stand up for working people and fight it each and every step of the way, and we will do that. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Okay, that was uh, Wynn Workers Independent News talking about the uh, Verizon strike, talking about other labor actions in the U.S. Here's um, the Radio Labor World Report about our brothers and sisters overseas. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Later World Report recorded on April 15, 2016. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, 40,000 telecommunication workers are on strike in the United States. Fast food workers around the world rally and strike for better pay and working conditions. A UN agency condemns Egypt's anti-labor practices. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. In the United States, nearly 40,000 workers employed by the telecommunication giant Verizon are on strike. It is the largest strike in the country's history since 45,000 Verizon workers went on a 13-day strike in 2011. The strike is affecting the company's landline division, not its wireless section. Most of the workers are members of the Communications Workers of America, but there are also some members of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. Verizon says it has trained 10,000 people to work as replacement workers, known as scabs in the labor movement. The main issues include the outsourcing of jobs to other countries, cuts in health care benefits, forced transfers, cuts to pensioner payments, and poor pay. In 2015, Verizon earned a profit of $10 billion. Here are some of the Verizon workers who are walking the picket lines. My fight for my family is very important. My fight for my home is important. My fight for my three girls are important. Ten months our, our bargaining team has been negotiating in good faith, trying to come to an agreement. Well, the biggest issue for me um, is the fact that 
The company wants to basically relocate jobs on a moment's notice. We're all, you know, husbands, fathers, sons, daughters, and uh, when you're asking somebody to pick up and move, in some cases out of state for four months at a time, it's, it's, all, it's nearly impossible. I have uh, three boys, my two younger ones really, especially the, the youngest, you know, they, they depend on me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm divorced, so it's, um, yeah, it's very worrisome. I will, we will stand up for good jobs. We're ready to fight for good jobs and keep those good jobs in this country and not overseas. It makes me feel like betrayed. I mean, I gave them a whole, a 31 years. I don't think they're holding up their end of the bargain at this point. Verizon seemed to be the poster child for corporate greed. Corporate greed is them constantly getting raises as executives, building their profits, yet crying poor. I'm worth a good contract. My kids are worth a good contract. What we want is a fair contract. What we want is for them to respect us as employees. They've made billions of, Verizon made $39 billion this year, okay? And now they want us to give back. We're not here to give back. We're here, those profits they earned with our blood, sweat, and tears. Thursday, April 14th was this year's global day of action for fast food workers. Workers around the world demonstrated and went on strike for decent pay and the right to form a union. In the United States, where the actions on behalf of fast food workers started three years ago, tens of thousands of workers and their supporters took action in more than 1,000 cities across the nation. The strikes and rallies that have been organized in the U.S. prompted the international labor movement to stage a global day of action for fast food workers. The day is coordinated worldwide by the International Union of Food Workers, the IUF. I talked to Massimo Frattini about the IUF's global day of action. Mr. Frattini is the IUS policy officer responsible for issues related to restaurant workers. I asked him how the Global Day of Action for Fast Food Workers started. We started organizing fast food workers in a more uh, global way back in 2013 uh, when we supported an action of uh, migrant workers in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, we found out, and also the affiliates told us, uh, to coordinate the fast food work in a more global way because they found out the issues were the same. And so what we would like to highlight, uh, issues are clearly the same in many countries, many places. For example, uh, in terms of employment, uh, low wages, absence of benefits, uh, and more broadly, the freedom of association, so the freedom to join or form the union. Then there are also some specific issues we would like to highlight. For example, the zero-hour contract, which exists in UK. There are also some local issues. For example, what is called the charity work in, uh, in Asia, uh, which means an employee has to work uh, one hour, two hours for free to show the loyalty to the company. So these are the issues we want to uh, raise, we want to highlight, we want to make public. Since the uprisings in the Arab world in 2011 aimed at winning greater democracy, Egypt has intensified its attacks on NGOs and unions. Radio Labor senior correspondent Seamary Ainsborough has the latest news. The UN's International Labor Organization, the ILO, has condemned Egypt for not respecting union rights in the country. Guy Ryder, the first unionist to lead the organization, has written to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, 
reminding him that freedom of association, the right to form unions, must be respected. Mr. Ryder demanded cancellation of a ban on the recognition of independent unions in the country. The ban prohibits collective bargaining, stops unions from publishing official documents, and puts union leaders at the risk of being arrested. Since 2008, the ILO has been calling on Egypt to adopt new national labour legislation, but the government has stubbornly refused. The ILO's criticism of Egypt's treatment of unions comes after the death of a young labour researcher, Giulio Regeni. Mr. Regeni, a PhD student from Italy, was murdered while he was in Cairo researching labour unions. His body was found February 4th bearing signs of torture. Union representatives at the ILO in Geneva, called the Workers' Group, expressed outrage at the death and have called for an independent inquiry. This is C. Marie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,100 stories our volunteers collected in the last week. Our top stories section included links to news about the continuing and huge protests against changes to France's labour laws, an escalation in the campaign against workers' rights violations in Qatar, and the use of the military to intimidate Kuwaiti trade unionists preparing to strike. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Truck drivers in Bangladesh struck to protest the murder of two of their co-workers by bandits and a general lack of security in rural areas of the country. Canadian social service workers walked to back their union's demand for raises equal to what management have received. French metal workers were in Paris to protest job cuts at General Electric. In India, city managers were burning garbage in the streets as a solid waste collection worker strike continued. South African airport workers escalated their wage dispute last week. Energy workers continued their protests over the restructuring of their industry in Slovenia. In Nigeria, a public transport wage dispute escalated into a full-blown strike. Cypriot bank workers began an open-ended walkout over job security. In Argentina, taxi drivers blocked roads as Uber began operating in Buenos Aires. And in the Philippines, electronics workers walked after 20 co-workers were fired for their union organizing efforts. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the wage theft suffered by domestic workers in Iceland, a renewed push for wage equality in New Zealand, and reports of widespread human trafficking in the Middle East. Our health and safety newswire carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the hazards faced by gay airline employees forced to work flights to Iran, a large number of workplace deaths reports from India, and victories in the global campaign against asbestos in Australia and Canada. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Follow us on Twitter, at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Okay, that was Radio Labor, preceded by uh, the Win News Reports, Workers Independent News. Let's um, see a little bit more. This Verizon strike is a big deal. Unions representing nearly 40,000 Verizon workers, I'm on socialistworker.org, announced plans to hit the picket line on April 13th. So they've been out now for two days. Um, the CWA, Communication Workers of America, a shop steward from New York City, says there are a lot of issues that we've been bargaining, concessions over the past several contracts. Verizon is attacking our medical, our pension, disability, overtime. All of our compensation is under attack. Verizon wants to be able to transfer workers for a short, like two or four months at a time, which means the workers have to leave their families they have to find housing somewhere else at the same time as they're paying for their housing where they came from and uh, moved around like that. There's also been an erosion of call center work and an increase in contracting out. And this contract would allow for closing more call centers and transferring members up to 80 miles from their current jobs, as well as opening the door to increased job outsourcing. People before hired before in 2003 have essentially ironclad job security. People retire of their own volition or take an incentivized buyout. For people hired after 2003, it's much easier to be laid off, which we've seen in New York City, where it's very hard to find anybody working on the technical side with less than 15 years on the job. Verizon makes massive, massive profits, $39 billion over three years company has essentially drawn a line in the sand and they're not going to shift without a major action on our part. They've essentially stuck to their proposal since August and even though the union volunteered $200 million in concession in the late winter, the company wasn't interested at all. The stakes are very high. If the union accepts this horrible transfer concession, it's going to spell the death of the union. Too many of us are older and have established families and roots in our communities to pick up and leave for two months at a time. This is a make or break issue for the union. Okay, so we want to make sure and keep an eye on that. Um, Horizon previously went out on strike for 13 days and won some of their uh, some of their demands at the time. 
All right. Want to uh, play the work of some of our sisters. It's um, Joan Baez's 75th birthday. And this is Baez's recording of Joe Hill. I, I always admire Joan Baez in this sense. She identified Woodstock in some way, shape, or form as a working class movement. So when she was asked to sing at uh, Woodstock, she didn't come out with one of her sentimental ballads or even a cover of a Bob Dylan song or so many other things she could have done. She came out with this.
June Baez with her version of Joe Hill, and then we're celebrating the birthday of another great woman of song, Ella Fitzgerald, who whose birthday is in April 25th, a girl who had a real uh, difficult childhood. Uh, she was left at 15 to live with a stepfather, a lot of people who a lot of biographers think that he abused her. Um, she dropped out of school, let her grades suffer. She was uh, thrown into an asi- uh, colored orphan's asylum, escaped, moved to the New York training school for girls. For a time she, after she escaped, she was homeless and uh, began to sing. When she was 17, one of the earliest amateur nights at the Apollo Theater. She had originally intended to go on stage and dance, but intimidated by a local dance duo called the Edward Sisters, she opted 
to sing instead. Her first hit was the one we just played for you, a tisket, a tasket. And while we're at it, I want to pass on a story about Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald, in the early 50s, um, wanted to sing at the Magambo Room in Hollywood, which at that time uh, didn't allow African-American singers there. None of the big jazz clubs did, even in California. So, even in California. <laughs> California, believe me, is no better than any other place as far as that goes. But uh, she met Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe said to her, I'll tell you what, if you go to the Magambo and sing, you want to go to the Magambo and sing, I can help you. So Marilyn Monroe went to the, the manager of the Magambo and said to him, let her sing here. And the guy said, no, we can't let a colored sing here. And she said, if you let her sing here, I will come and have a table front and center at every show that she sings. Now, of course, the manager knew that 1954, that if Marilyn Monroe came and people knew that she was coming, it would be packed every night. And so it was. Marilyn Monroe did show up. They did let Ella Fitzgerald sing. The rest is history. Ella said that she never had to sing a small jazz club ever again. She said uh, Marilyn Monroe was a little ahead of her time, but she didn't know it. So there's women helping women. And here's another woman talking about anti-immigration rhetoric. And there's another enemy. And that enemy is the immigrant. It's not accidental, I don't think, that as this rhetoric, this anti-crime rhetoric developed, as the anti-welfare rhetoric developed, an anti-immigrant rhetoric also developed. You know, keep the borders closed, prevent the and you see, it's interesting. It's not just a question of preventing people from other countries from coming to the U.S. and trying to establish a life here. Preventing certain kinds of people, people from certain countries, people from third world countries, People from Central America, people from Asia. I, I read a study that indicated that actually the, uh, the, the largest number of illegal, quote, illegal immigrants come from European countries. 
But no one ever considers the possibility that a white person could be an illegal. I mean, I know quite a number of illegal people, you know, from places like uh, Britain and France who come in on student visas and decide to stay. And they don't even feel threatened. I mean, it's interesting. They are not even afraid of the INS. Whereas people who are, quote, legal citizens, but who look as if they might come from another country, fear what the INS might do to them, or that if they don't have their ID with them, that they might get deported. So isn't it interesting that in all three of these um, examples that I've given, the figures are clearly racialized figures. And I think that there's a structural connection between the demonization of the immigrant and the criminalization of populations of color in this country. And let me give you just a sense of, of how I would try to make those connections. I said I, I might uh, say a few words about uh, capitalism, or, or did I? Well, I alluded to the fact that even though I'm no longer a member of the Communist Party, I'm still very much committed to um, um, democratic socialism and to finding ways to challenge a capitalist system which has probably uh, an, an even vaster impact on our lives, on our daily lives, than ever before. Because we're talking about capitalism in the age of globalization, right? We're talking about global capitalism. We're talking about transnational capitalism. What we are witnessing is the development of a um, circuit of corporations that belong to no particular nation state that do not, that are not expected to respect the laws of any given nation state, that move across borders at will in search, in perpetual search of what? More profits. The reason for the law, you know, you know the law and order, you know, the law is like a grocery store, that's where it's at, you know. I want protection of law number 63 under order 22. That's it, yeah, that's it. That was, we all start and we have a community. Okay, let's see, uh, we'll How have some law rules. got started okay. by Lenny Bruce. We'll have law, we gotta have some law? All right, what's the law we gotta have? Okay, we'll sleep in area A. That cool? Okay, all right, that's a law. We'll eat in area B. Good, that's a law, okay. Eat in area C, good, all right. No, well, sleep, eat, crap in Area C, right? A, B, C, eat, sleep, crap. All agreed? All agreed. Okay, that's the law, don't forget it. All right, eat, sleep, and crap, we all agree on it. All right. Now we go to sleep, guy wakes up with a face full of crap. Pow! 
Hey, what's the deal? Am I eating in the wrong place or crapping in where I'm sleeping or what is it? It's a, is this A over here? I got a face full of crap. So I don't know, we all voted on it and agreed to crap here and... Uh, well, wait a minute, that's... Uh, you know what we did, it's... What we did, we had a constitution, that's it. That's, that's the rule we are. We have to have something to enforce it, that's it. Yeah, that's it. We got to. We have to have a remedy. If anybody craps on you, we have to have to wipe it off. Of course, that's it. All right. This is the remedy. Okay. If anybody throws any crap on us while we're sleeping or eating, they get thrown in the crap house. That's a remedy that'll keep the crap off us. Okay. All agreed. Because well, everybody gets thrown in the crap house. Yeah. But what if it's an exception? Suppose it's a poor old lady and uh, she couldn't make it to the crap house. And uh, what the hell has that got to do with it? The old ladies. Uh, well, well, oh, you don't understand. This isn't to do with old ladies. This is to keep crap off us. And this, I didn't tell you about no punishment. That's, that's enough for the court to listen to it. You think those, the old lady, if she's got an excuse for crapping, then she don't pay the penalty. But at least she's got an answer for the crapping. Yeah? All right. Okay, solid. Now they go to sleep, everybody's happy again. Guy wakes up, face full of crap. Pow! But he wakes up, he sees he's all alone. And he looks, and everybody else is having a big party and singing with candles, and what's the deal? So we had a rule, I'm sleeping in a face full of crap, it's always a religious holiday. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's a holiday, it's religious. Oh, I'm separating the church and the state right now. Pow! <laughs> There's the rule law, and the church law will be there. But the, our law will be the supreme law. Nothing controverts that, all right? Solid, okay. Now they're going along very cool. Now, uh, now guys starts to get bugged because they took turns, see, throwing people in the crap house. Now, it, was, it wasn't a regular thing, like it was a small tribe on weekends. The guy said, okay, you, you got the crap house duty uh, this weekend, you know, anybody throw them in the crap house, okay. Now they have a meeting. Guys, look, I'm having a little problem here. Now, a lot of you guys, who get the duty, you come from the outlands there, you work on the farms. When you throw these people in the crap house, you never see them again. But I gotta sell cars to some of these assholes. <laughs> now, when I got the duty and a guy throws crap out of sleep and I throw him in the crap house, when I go to sell him a car, he goes, fuck you! <laughs> you threw me in the crap house. I said, I didn't throw you in the crap house, I was doing a job. Are you, are you kidding with that? So you don't wanna hear that shit. Keep saying, that I threw him in a crap house and I can't sell him a car. So no matter what I tell him, it don't work. So we gotta get somebody else to throw him in a crap house but me. So let's get somebody, we'll, we'll have a, somebody who enforce the law and that'll just be a department to do that. All right, let's get, sorry, now they start to interview guys. All right, look, here's the job, fellas. We wanna get some sleep, that's number one. Now, we find out without any law, we crap on each other. The only thing to save us from each other is law. So, 
we got to get somebody to enforce it, and we want somebody to throw these people in the crap house and they throw crap house, right? That's that easy. But look, don't do it in front of me. Now, here's a stick and a gun, and you do it. But if I happen to be around, see, and you got to throw in the crap house, you throw in the crap house, but I'll have to give you some bullshit like, you know, boy, oh boy, Gestapo. <laughs> But it takes a certain kind of mentality to do that work, right? So, uh, boy, anybody want to do that to somebody, you know? But you just throw them right in the shithouse, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'll be in the back room. I'll be watching through the Venetian blinds there, you know? So. OK, that's cool. OK, now you get a few more rules. You know, it gets a little more complex. Another rule, another rule, another rule. Now you got, like, about, you know, Maybe 1,200 laws. We can make a demonstration, right? Now there's 10,000 people wailing their ass off. Okay, now it goes like, law so-and-so and so. Nobody, uh, nobody in public streets, blah, blah, blah. Nobody in the post office steps. Solid, okay. Garbage patrol comes out. Okay, nobody in the post office steps. Get out of here, bap, 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 bap. Okay, now, now you got people just wear sticks and stones. Then he had a cop there who was 23 years old. He's got a short sleeve shirt on, a stick in his hand. People don't get stopper with him. He's got stopper, you asshole. I'm the mailman. <laughs> what do you want from me? was uh, Lenny Bruce's version of, of how uh, the law started. I pay particular attention to the part where he tells the police what their job is and how uh, they're supposed to maintain law and order however they can. And uh, he says to police, but you know, if you do something like that, I'm going to probably have to say something like, oh, Gestapo, which is what our public figures do. The police are out there protecting them. The police are out there protecting property rights for those people who are making money, big money, off the system as it is. The cops are there to preserve that order. We had Angela Davis citing the, the links between the environmental movement and the movement to help our immigra Im people who Im Im <clears throat> immigration policy, the, the connection between the two. Okay, I want to play a couple of songs now. This is April, and this is the birthday of my soulmate. So I'm going to play a couple of songs for her. And then we'll come back in the, uh, in the 11 o'clock hour. going to have a, an interview with a San Francisco Unified School District teacher dealing with the tests. We've got John Trudeau on the way back. We've got... The Kader factory explosion strikes in Stalinist Russia in the 1930s, led by women. Quite a bit still to do. 
Here it is. This is for Sylvia. Since I made you, baby, my whole life has changed. Since I made Spring 
Simone with her version of Turn Me On. As always, uh, she handles a song in a completely unique way. Okay, and before Nina Simone, we had Ivory Joe Hunter with his hit from the 50s, Since I Met You Baby, later covered famously by Freddie Fender. Okay, so uh, baseball season's here, right? Baseball, and uh, the Giants are playing it at Los in Los Angeles with the Dodgers, and the place where the Dodgers play their home games is a stadium called Chavez Ravine which in past times was a um, um, community made up of two little towns in the hills of Los Angeles. Uh, in the 1950s, the presidents of two of New York baseball teams, the Giants and the Dodgers, had the idea to move their teams to California, uh, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And when they did that, uh, they had to get land. In San Francisco, there was a huge scandal involved in the land where the park was built, which was on Bayfield, a place called Candlestick Point. And it was turned out to be a terrible place for a baseball field, and it turned out to be pretty crappy, the building part of it. Uh, players hated to play there because it was so cold. The contractor who, who got the contract to do the park, Charles Harney, just happened to own the land anyway. A whole story. In Los Angeles, it took another form because the land that the Dodgers wanted was already a city 
a town, little towns in, in the hills. People lived there. It was their community. So they had to find a way to get the people out. And what they did was, under redevelopment, they moved them out and they condemned the whole area and said they were going to build new houses there and the people would have the first shot at them. Now, the guy who shepherded this through was accused of being a communist, ultimately. This is how you got rid of a political opponent or an op opponent of one of your programs in those days. You called them a communist. It still works. You call the person whatever. But in the 50s, this was... So this guy who had the idea of turning Chavez Ravine into a model community was red-baited out of government. The city reneged on the deal and turned the land over to the Dodgers in order to attract big league baseball. Chavez Ravine. So every time, I mean, I haven't... Here's, here's Ry Cooter singing about it, third base Dodger Stadium.
Okay, that was Ry Cooter with uh, third base Dodger Stadium. Tribute to the community that was there. A thriving community of uh, working people. Okay, and we had Lenny Bruce before that with his analysis of how society started. Eat, sleep, and crap. I want to play something now by John Trudell, one of the uh, poet laureates, one of the writers, one of the great thinkers and theorists of the Native American uh, movement. Listen to what he says. The earth was the mother. This is his... Our relationship to power is the objective. Our use of our intelligence, see, and our coherence. So all this cloudy is created, this illusion, because really it is. Crazy Horse said we live in the shadow of the real world, see, and we really, really do. Under the male dominator creator theory, see, all spiritual value really is removed away from the earth. So the earth isn't your mother anymore. The earth is the dominion and property of this new God, and you are to subdue it. See, that's like Martians landing. It really is, see, because it's a completely different perceptional reality. Going from caring for the earth, all right, to dominating the earth. And incidentally, you know, as a part of this process, see, you, incidentally, you created a moral crime for being born. So therefore, you have to listen to the authority of this new male god because you made a crime for being here. You see, before, before that was brought here, life was a gift. So when, when you were born, it was like an exchange of gifts, a, a gift to a gift. And even dying was like a gift because it was, once again, it was an exchange of life because we were part of a spiritual reality as physical beings. But anyway, this other thing, see, changed about there was something wrong with us for being born. See, and it's maybe a big thing, or see, to me, I think it's a major thing because, see, the first time that human being gets this, that they're guilty, all right, for being born, it alters their perception of self. It alters them from seeing themselves from the reality of who they are because they're picking up someone's illusion and they're viewing themselves through the illusion. And the way that that illusion seems to work, see, people don't learn from their guilt. They just make new guilts. See, so it, to me, in the end, it becomes a deal about irresponsibility. So even though all the words are being said, see, it's an irresponsible behavior. It's an irresponsible behavior because we are responsible for what we do. But when they condition us to feel guilty, and then we have to listen to their chain of command and be submissive to them, we are not taking responsibility. And we are not showing respect to our creator, whoever it is, all right, for the gift of intelligence and life.
No time for spin doctors' medicine. Corporation government selling me some cover up. Weaponizing pesticides, poisoning my groceries. Nothing but another drug, a license they can buy and sell. No, I don't mind dying. Okay, that was uh, Buffy St. Marie with uh, a cut from her latest album called Power and the Blood. Before that, we had Native American philosopher and uh, writer John Trudell talking about how the earth is no longer our mother because by treating her as a commodity, we have changed the whole relationship between uh, humans and uh, natural order. And before that, we had, in honor of the baseball season beginning, third base Dodger Stadium, describing how 
Chavez Ravine baseball field was stolen from the people of Los Angeles. Now let's uh, change speeds a little here. As I said, we're going to have an interview today. And my guest is Cynthia Lasden. Morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming. I have to appreciate that you came here on a Saturday morning. If you're a teacher or a parent of public school children in San Francisco or anywhere in California, this is the season of the test. We're going to talk with Cynthia today about the test. So, Cynthia, let me begin. You teach at Fairmont? That's right. I teach at Fairmont Elementary here in the city. And what grade? Um, I'm currently a literacy specialist and a literacy coach, but for many years I taught fourth grade in the Spanish immersion program there. Okay. And you're also a mom. I am. Eight-year-old girl. Eight turning nine. Congratulations. Thank you. So when we talk about the tests, what exactly are we talking about? What are the tests? Right. Well, I think when people talk about the tests, they're talking about standardized tests. But just to sort of put it in context, um, we teachers have to give a lot of different kind of tests. And there are, there are some tests which we call assessments that are useful. Um, so it's not like we're anti-tests completely in, in like a blanket statement. Um, the kind of tests or assessments that are useful are those that kind of drive our curriculum. We, we give a test to find out what do students know before we teach something, or we give a test after we teach something to figure out, hey, did they get it? And then what do I need to teach if they didn't get it? So those are kind of called formative assessments. They, they inform us about what we're teaching and what kids are learning. But the, the tests that you're referring to, those are standardized tests. And um, those are not so helpful. So those are the ones we're talking about. The SBAC in California, which is called the Smarter Balanced La La La, blah, something, blah, blah. something, something, <laughs> assessment of something. And, and then there's a whole slew of other standardized type tests that have been mandated by SFUSD, our school district, and probably many other school districts as well. So like right now, the school, our, our school district implemented this year something called the IDA, the Interim District Assessment, which parents really should find out about because they are mini standardized tests throughout the year, in addition to the, the SBAC, which is the year-end test. Okay. One of the major arguments against this type of testing is how much time it takes from what would otherwise be educational time or learning time or other activities. How much time do these tests take, including the practice for them? Right. Well, the year-end test might take a week or two in a classroom. Most school sites give them, I'm, I'm, I'm focused more on elementary schools, but they give them in the middle schools and up to 11th grade as well. So um, in the elementary schools, most school sites will block off a week. So pretty much it's a week or two weeks. In my daughter's classroom, it, it went o almost two full weeks. Um, I opted her out, but, I, but during that time, um, the kids were testing every single morning, and it's a computerized test. So that, that's just the SBAC that we're talking about. But we're not just talking about that test, because we're also talking about a whole menu of tests that start the day your kids walk into school with, with reading tests, some which are meaningful, actually. Reading tests, individual reading tests, some which are computerized, others that test um, language, others that test science, others that test reading, others that, 
that then there are these interim tests. So there's, it's really when we talk about time, we're not just talking about though that one week of mornings that's lost at the end of the year. We're really talking about multiple days. And if if your child attends an immersion program, they're also be te- they're also being tested in a second language many times. So we, we, a rough calculation would say there's about 12 days of testing at elementary level. Um, and that is, that is a, a conservative number. And for kids who are in an immersion program who need to be tested in two languages three times a year to see how their reading is, that's, a lot, that's many more days than that. Okay, now uh, you're part of a campaign with UESF and um, other organizations to opt out get parents to opt out or right. what's the stance of of your organizing uh-huh. right okay so i'm on the executive board of our union united educators of san francisco we represent teachers paraprofessionals nurses psychiat psychologists uh and other folks who work in the school district um and there's a, a committee that's the testing committee and so this year we're really looking at i, I had up i had up that committee and we're really looking at this year um how much testing is going on so that we can be informed as educators and also use that information to inform parents and support parents in opting out. There's really two kind of basic ways to resist the test. One is that we as teachers just say we're not going to give it, and there are repercussions that can come with that, like we can lose our jobs. Indeed. Yeah. And not to say that we shouldn't be organizing around that, Um, but parents have a legal right to opt their child out. So with a simple one-sentence note to the principal or the administration of the school, uh, you could just say, I don't want my child taking any standardized tests this year, or I don't want my child taking this, this, and this test this year, whatever you choose. I mean, I've known people that have opted out of report cards and everything. You, can, you do not have, um, you, you have every right to opt your child out without repercussions. Okay. Um, what can... What should parents know about the test? What, uh, what's particularly hard on their, their kids? Um, mm-hmm. Before we go to that, can I say one or two more things about opting out? Please. Um, a couple things to note about opting out is that um, the school district and the, and the state and even the federal government always threaten us that, oh, you know, there's funding tied to these tests. So if, if you have, you know, more than a few kids opt out at your school, the district and will put pressure on the administrator of that school and say, you know, what's going on at your school site? Why are there so many families opting out? Because there's this sort of threat that they're going to take funding away from your school and you'll lose resources. You'll you'll lose what limited, you know, um, are the limited art teacher or PE teacher that you have at your site or... But that's never been proven. I mean, even last year, New York State had 20% of their families opt out of standardized testing. Huge. Huge, and that sends a real political statement to uh, the powers that be who, that p- parents don't want this test. That's one out of every five families, that's great. They had no loss of funding. They had no, all of those threats, they were empty threats. And the, we, there's never been an example of a school district or a school site that has lost money, so uh, we've, we've even asked the district straight up and and they cannot give us an answer if x amount of kids opt out you're going to lose this much money so there's that's really that's an empty threat and the other thing that parents worry about is uh, at least in the school district is entrance into high school 
the SBAC is being rolled in. This is really the first year that the scores are going to count. And so they're predicting really low scores. Um, and so the district this year is, has, is not using it for any college, for any high school entrance. Uh, they used to use it for Lowell, which is the, the, the so-called more prestigious, you know, in entre comillas, uh, between quotations, school, you know. And it, it's, Lowell is not using it this year. And the, and the other thing that it's not being used for is to reclassify English language learners, which traditionally the, the, the end of the year standardized test, test has been used for that, and it's not being used for that either. Okay, I mean, I remember uh, when I was teaching and we talked about all this, we were told that there was a law, an actual law that you could not notify parents of their right to opt out of the test. Is that the case? Actually, it's just the opposite. There is a law that protects teachers and any educator to notify parents, that, that we can notify parents. It is under the state ed code. And I can tell you, it is... Uh, California Ed Code 60615. Okay, parents out there, please write that down. 60615, yeah. your right to opt out of standardized testing. Right. That, that, that uh, Ed Code says two things. It says that educators have the, have the right to tell parents of their rights, and parents have the right to opt out. Educators are not supposed to um, encourage. However, you know, when I became a teacher and signed a contract with SFUSD, I did not give away my freedom of speech. So I work a seven-hour workday. I have a lunch hour. I have breaks. I have before school, after school, email, Facebook. So I can do whatever I want on my own time. And I'm also a parent, so it helps to organize. I've helped to organize my daughter's school. We've done a few presentations over there for parents. Um, as a parent, I can do that. As a teacher at my own site, I need to be careful with what I do on my work hours at my school site. Um, but we've, we've had good successes talking to parents and parents really don't know how much testing is going on and they're shocked when they find out. Okay. Um, very well, very well said. Um, anything else you want to say? Oh, I wanted to mention one thing, informing people out there every year, year in and year out, these tests, which in some way, shape, or form come out of the eugenics movement to prove that one group is smarter than another. Every year they follow socioeconomic status, isn't that right? Oh, that is right. They're used to track kids, and they're basically useless to educators and to families. I mean, the test is given at the end of the year, if we're talking about the SBAC. The SBAC test, it's given at the end of the year. Teachers, we don't even see the scores until the following school year, when we, August, when we go back. We see last year's scores. So that's not helpful in our teaching and learning, as I was saying earlier. It's really not helpful to parents either, because it gives you a score like one, two, three, or four, or a percentile, where you can see where your kid compares to other kids in the district or other kids in the state. But that doesn't really give you any useful information, does it, about how your kid is learning, what they're doing well in, what you can help them with at home. So those kind of more meaningful formative assessments that I was talking about earlier, you know, where we sit down and read with the kid and listen to, listen to a kid and find out, mm, what, what are you doing well? What can I help you with? What can a parent do at home? Those are the kinds of assessments that we need and we use. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, Bill, but yeah, I think that's, so. Yeah, that's fine. Um, the, the, other, the other thing that, uh, I mean, you, you did ask, and I don't think I ever really got to this because I, I went back, but um, 
A couple of the other problems with these tests is that um, the test scores in many districts, luckily not yet in San Francisco, uh, but in many districts they're used to evaluate teachers, which is really a load of crap. Excuse my language. Um, we shouldn't be rating teachers on how kids do in their in their class on, on a standardized test. Uh, lastly, or not lastly, but you talked about the time spent. Um, a lot of resources are also spent. We have um, what's called an IRF, an instructional reform facilitator, which is much like kind of an assist assistant principal or an admin position in our site. And for the last two months of school, she is just rolling a computer cart around the school, you know, helping, helping put out tech issues, problems that deal with the test. So she's not working with kids. She's not coaching teachers. She's not uh, doing all the other important parts of her job, which is to re help reform the school. So if we're talking that testing is reforming the school, I would beg to differ. And many other resources are lost as well. The computer cart that we have, uh, it goes just for testing. Kids can't use it for research or for whatever else that they would use it for. And, you know, and um, let's see. Let me mention a case. I mean, recently, some San Francisco teachers who were teaching in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, were teaching there, and they were all having problems. They were all being called bad teachers. And then when they moved to Lowell, they became teacher, teachers of the year. So they were eligible for some bonuses which they honorably turned down. It just shows, goes to show that one school you're great, one school you're not. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything else you want to say? Um, well, yeah, I think that parents uh, definitely should be asking, asking the, their kids' teachers, what are these tests? What assessments do you give? Which ones are meaningful and which ones are a waste of time? Because most teachers are going to tell you that the standardized tests the SBAC, the, the interim district assessment, the IDA this year, which the district hasn't, is it's option. It was optional. Our school district purchased it from the folks that create the SBAC. So, and what and and directly out of uh, the head of the assessment department, directly out of his mouth, it was to predict the success of the year-end test. Now, if you're if you're going to make the argument that we need to test kids to predict how they're going to do at the year-end assessment. I mean, I can't, I, it's, let's not even go there. No, let's not even. Um, so yeah, parents can, parents can opt out very easily. We have a couple of Facebook pages that you could look at. One that's called opt out SFUSD. Um, and up there are, are pre, um, like templates that you could use in English, Spanish, and Chinese to opt your kid out. You just sign the name and sign your name and put your child's name on there and hand it to the admin. It's not too late to opt out for the school year, even if your child's already started the test. Um, parents should also be asking for other more meaningful activities for your kid to do instead of testing. Yeah. Can my child please go to the library? Can my child please go with the art teacher? Can my child please go with the student teachers or the reading teacher and do something meaningful instead of testing? Um, other thing that parents can do is talk to the school board, especially in San Francisco Unified, about the the over assessing. It's 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 like a, a train that needs to stop. And um, yeah, those those are some of the things. There's also a really great resource that's um, Opt Out United. Wait, United Opt Out, Opt Out United, United Opt Out. United Opt Out. Yeah, United Opt Out, and that's a national. Uh, 
organization that's really um, got great information and can give some really good background information as well. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for coming and sharing all this information with us. Remember, if you're a parent of a San Francisco public school kid, you have the right to opt out of these tests, at least to go to school and question what they are. My guest has been Cynthia Lasden. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me and taking really, up this important issue. Appreciate it. I really appreciate your coming. Absolutely. Okay, here's... Uh, From across the street, got in my nose. Yeah. yeah, we carried our letters down the street with the Rod Iron Cage Rose. I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers in my lunch break. At the shop on the corner and went straight back to work. Oh, Sam was up on top and I was on the bottom with the V. We went for lemonade and Paris buns at the shop and broke the tea. That's it. Inside out. I was blowing saxophone on the weekend in a down joint.
Quick 26. I will be right tomorrow. I just buy a tanner a three deep in the windowsill here. Okay, Van Morrison, he's a working man in his prime, washing windows. Thanks again for to uh, Cynthia for coming by on a Saturday morning to share her awareness with us about the tests. Um, very important to know what's going on at, at school, where your children are going. Okay, that was... That was um, Van Morrison washing windows and this is Labor and Love the show where we tell you how it is if one person got a dollar they didn't work for another person worked for a dollar they didn't get second if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table you're probably on the menu and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and when I say labor, I mean you. Let's see if we got time for one more story here. Uh, I love this one. This is uh, Rick Scott went into a coffee house to uh, I guess grab some brew and look what happened to him. Former Lake Worth Commissioner Kara Jennings is going viral after video surfaced of the South Florida activist shouting at Governor Rick Scott in a Starbucks in Gainesville. It doesn't work. In fact, you cut Medicaid so I couldn't get Obamacare. You're an asshole. You don't care about working people. I'm not talking to you. You don't care about working people. You should be ashamed to show your face around here. So there was Governor Rick Scott at a Starbucks in uh, South Florida just trying to get a cup of coffee. But you can't escape your deeds. Um, you got to serve somebody. Working class history. Today, well, April 12th, actually, on this day in 1934, workers at the Electric Autolite Company in Toledo, Ohio, went on strike, kicking off what will become known as the Toledo Autolite Strike, arguably one of the most important strikes in American labor history. Look it up. 
Okay, this is the B, and it's about time for us to say goodbye for another week. Get out of here so Scott Walker can take over with flat black plastic coming right up after labor and love. Okay, call out to everybody. Vita, hope you're doing fine up there in Davis. Sylvia and all the people I'll see probably later this afternoon. Have a good week and good work. insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives.
him to smoke it. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast god, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to SubliminalSF.com now. No 
evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four ninety-nine. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds.
Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species 